0: Just go to Indeed.com slash Blue Wire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's indeed.com slash Blue Wire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Bluewire. First
1: pick. In the nineteen ninety-one NBA draft, the Charlotte Hornets select. Larry Johnson from University I'm not this to be here, man. A lot of people from where I'm from, So you know, don't, don't make it.
2: Charlotte, we're back.
3: All right, good morning. Welcome to another BuzzBeat, a Charlotte Hornets podcast. This is Richie, and I'll be joined by Lee today on this Sunday. We are coming to you live here on Twitter Spaces. We're here to recap the win over the Spurs and answer some questions from our listeners. We probably plan on going thirty to forty minutes and then calling it. Lee, how are you doing this morning?
1: I'm great. I think the uh, I think the intro uh, is is very apropos right now. You know, we're back. I mean, t- two wins in a row for the Hornets. This might as well feel like a ten game winning streak at this point. So yeah, let's. Uh, Let's get irresponsibly optimistic again. I think that would be the best thing to do.
3: (laughs) Yes, exactly. Uh, It it feels good to have a uh, win streak, if you want to call it that, of two games. So what we're going to do is kind of look at this game from Saturday night against the Spurs and kind of give our quick overview thoughts on this. First off, both teams like to push the pace, so it was no surprise that this game had like an up-and-down feel to it. Uh, from a team perspective, not from an individual perspective, but from a team perspective, I thought Charlotte did a good job of getting to the rim where they had 44% of their field goal attempts within four feet. Uh, they used a lot of pick and roll uh, to get there. Rozier and Cody Martin did a good job. I think that's a strength of Cody Martin is, is getting to the rim and finishing uh-huh. under control and you know, getting all the way to the hoop. And all that aggressiveness also resulted in, you know, drawing more fouls for Charlotte. And they drew a ton, Not I shouldn't say a ton more, but they definitely drew a significant more fouls than the Spurs, and they got to the free throw line. And I think what was kind of telling, I guess, we've seen this in the past where the Hornets have had chances to close out big games or to win close games at the free throw line. And they really haven't done it in recent stretch. But on Saturday, not only did they get 11 more attempts from the line in the fourth quarter alone, they made all 14 attempts uh, from the free throw line. So I thought that was, you know, it wasn't the one thing that won the game for them, but it was a very mature response for the Hornets in that fourth quarter where it felt like neither team could kind of grow their lead. And it was a back and, back and forth battle between the Spurs and the Hornets.
1: Yeah, it was. And I mean, you know, Hornets get back to above 500 at home, uh, 16 and 15 in the spectrum center. Now there's still obviously one game below 500 in the standings. Uh, You know, I kind of tweeted briefly about this last night, Richie, we're not obviously we're not fully healthy. You know, notably McDaniels is still out. Of course, Hayward is still out, but that being said, we are getting back to, to like marginal relative health and, all of a sudden, now you know with this kind of like, and I'm using quotes here, this new starting lineup of Ball, Rozier, Bridges, Washington, Plumley, which moves PJ Washington to the floor, which we should probably talk about a little bit. But but like that aside, when you got when you get Cody Martin back into lineup, and when you get Kelly Oubre back in the lineup, obviously Oubre has been back a little bit longer than Cody has. All of a sudden, like you're bringing Cody Martin, Montrezl Harrell and Kelly Oubre off your bench. And, you know, that's not exactly like, you know, we're not trotting out Hall of Famers here, but like you can do a lot worse in terms of your first three guys off the bench from a rotation standpoint. I thought um, the LaMelo Harrell pick and roll was incredibly effective last night. Uh, LaMelo made just some otherworldly kind of like roll passes to Montrez and Montrez did a really good job finishing around the basket last night. So it's good to see that kind of pick and roll chemistry start to take place a little bit. Obviously Montrez, if you go back to his Clippers days, the Lou Williams Montrez Harold pick and roll was like the best pick and roll in terms of uh, efficiency in the league for two or three years straight. So Harold does have that ability um, with good playmakers and good passers to create really efficient offense. Um, so I guess the, the main point I'm trying to make here is, as the Hornets are slowly but surely getting a little bit healthier, it's just nice to have a bit more depth off the bench. Uh, Cody played 31 minutes last night, and, and as you as you pointed to, like was really good again. Besides the Detroit loss that, that BG pointed out, where he was kind of uncharacter- uncharacteristically bad, Cody has been awesome um in his return to the lineup and is just a player that we've talked about a lot throughout this season that the hornets desperately need he's it sounds cliche but he is absolutely an x factor for this team
3: yeah i want to get back to what you said about lamella ball and montrez that pairing uh lamella ball finished with 27 points, 7 assists and 8 rebounds last night uh, that stretch at the beginning of the second quarter in those like yep. first 4 to 5 minutes was awesome to watch i think that was probably his best stretch of the game he had a couple of floaters. He had a you know back-to-back pull-up threes. He was assisting to Harold, like you mentioned at the rim. It almost felt like he was scoring or assisting on every basket to begin yeah. that quarter. Like it, for the first five or six minutes, it was either a three, a two, or an assist to Harold. And yeah, you like to see a a guy, a guy like Harold that can pair well with ball and, and and be that that rim pressure guy out of the pick and roll. And then you also mentioned P.J. Washington as well playing the four more frequently he can affect the game in a ton of ways other than scoring. Like he wasn't awesome from behind the arc last night and he only had 13 points, but I think we do need to praise his defense a little bit more. I think Borrego knows that PJ can be used as a very versatile defender. Like we've seen him guard players like Jimmy Butler. We've seen him guard players like Giannis. We've seen him guard players like Kyle Lowry, like big, small all over the place. And last night against San Antonio, they used him as a point of attack defender, too, against uh, Murray. And what was cool about that was, like, I think he felt comfortable with P.J. guarding Murray. But also, if there was a screen that took place with, let's say, Pirtle, well, then you just switch the screen and then, you know, P.J. is down on the block guarding yeah. Pirtle. I, I I think I like P.J. more at the four for defensive purposes because, you know, I, I think he might struggle a little bit more against some of those bruiser guys, Purdle could give him, you know, a tough matchup if he were to guard him, you know, for all 48 minutes, but to have him as a guy that's more versatile that can guard, uh, you know, wings that could guard point guards that could be a guy on the backside that just kind of, you know, it's like a Rover, right? Like he just kind yeah. of, move, he just kind of moves around. He cleans up things on the back end. And we talked about how good he was as a like backside rim protector last year and yeah. erasing shots at the rim. He, he did that again last night against Murray in the fourth quarter.
1: Yeah, I mean, we talked about it in the last spot. It was something I brought up that I really wanted to touch on. Is just kind of like PJ's uh, defensive versatility. I, I, and I tweeted about this last night. It, it feels like he's made... Uh, a leap defensively, even just like in the last two months um, with some incre- yeah. particularly like interior defensive plays, like tying guys up, you know, like like an opposing guard or wing drives to the basket, PJ cuts them off and ties them up or takes the ball from them or pokes it away or blocks them at the rim, like you pointed out against Murray last night. And just to add like a little flavor and context to some of the um, opinions you were just laying out that I agree with, Richie, Washington at the four uh, on the year, uh, about 800 possessions, basically like a flat net rating, but a really good defensive lineup, kind of regardless uh, of who he's paired with. If you look at the PJ plus Montrez minutes, which is obviously Washington at the four, Montrez at the five, it's still obviously a pretty low sample size, uh, only like 250 possessions so far because we just got Harrell. But it is plus 8.5, wow. and it's an incredible defensive lineup. Like, you know, like a 90th percentile defensive lineup. And then also, that other lineup that I would mentioned earlier, kind of the new starting lineup with Hayward out, is a really good defensive lineup as well, and it's plus 9 in 250 possessions. So, And I think there's one other angle to this. Like, I do agree that P.J. at the 4 allows him to do some different things defensively rather than just kind of covering, trying to like battle with the uh, yeah. opposing center. I think the other thing it does is it slides Bridges to the three and all of a sudden the Hornets are just rangier, more athletic and bigger on the defensive side of the ball than when they are with Bridges at the four and PJ at the five PJ at the five, I think is still a really good lineup, particularly in closing situations. But I just think one other angle that people haven't quite uh, considered yet is is getting to slide bridges to more of a traditional three uh slot as well in those lineups that helps defensively
3: yeah it's always been the debate with miles like is he better at the three is he better at the four Uh, but i also think it's dependent on the lineups like you're mentioning so maybe montrez at the five allows pj and miles to play together at the three four uh, probably more so than maybe a a plumley but We'll see how that that plays out for the rest of this season, but also maybe next year as well. And then offensively, PJ Washington, like I said, didn't have the greatest night shooting from behind the arc, but he had two like head turning plays that I thought were pretty awesome last night. That backdoor pass to Cody Martin late in the game that you know led to some free throw attempts, and then also he had yep. that buzzer beating left handed floater to end the third quarter. So I want to say he made all of his shots at the rim last night. That's something that we've talked about as a, a room for improvement for him. So this actually was a suggestion from someone on our survey, and I'm going to go ahead and put the survey again in the link to the episode notes, but they wanted us, as we recap the game, to give a player of the game. And I think, you, could, I think you can make a case for several people here, but I'm, I'm going to let you go firstly from last night. Who was the player of the game?
1: I'm going to keep rolling with Terry Rozier, man. We okay. have not talked about him yet um, t- today, at least. Obviously, kind of the 31 points is, is what it, it pops off the screen, I guess. He was six for eight from the three again. Terry's just on an absolute tear over the last month, over the last six weeks. You know, he, he had six assists last night as well. I think that was the one thing I kind of wanted to mention and hit on is the fact that Terry Rozier seems to be making strides as an offensive caretaker and like a playmaker with the ball. We know he's one of the elite kind of catch and shoot and movement shooters uh, in the world right now over his last three seasons in Charlotte. But I do think he's made a jump as a playmaker this year. Uh, The Rozier at the one minute. So that's obviously with LaMelo on the bench, Terry Rozier kind of playing that de facto backup point guard that we've talked about. We're up to a thousand possessions with Terry Rozier at the one and it's plus six Um, that 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 uh, statistic has been pretty volatile this year. There's been times when it's been really positive. There's been times where it's been even negative, but you know, once we get 60 games into a season, I start to feel a little bit more comfortable, like taking that math uh, by its face. And Uh, you would imagine and you would assume and it's true that that lineup is a subpar defensive lineup, but is an absolutely nuclear offensive lineup with Terry Rozier at the one 115 points per hundred possessions when he's at the one. So I I just think like we're seeing him progress as, as an on the ball playmaker, which was something I was always really uncomfortable with over the last two seasons. And I think he has earned James Borrego's trust as like, Uh, on-the-ball playmaker. And and last night, again, he was fantastic.
3: I thought you were going to make a player of the game, like make a case for LaMelo or maybe even make it for PJ even though his box score wasn't that overwhelming. But I I, I got to go Terry Rozier as well. Uh 31 uh-huh. points, 6 assists like you mentioned. I actually went back and watched those assists and they weren't necessarily like ones where he like he created four others. Like it was one of those like 6 assists where like he just would pass it to like Oubre and he would just catch and shoot three. So like <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't like this like drive and kick game. But to your yeah. point, like I think the numbers at the one where he's playing the point guard, he is steadily improving there and the lineups around him are steadily improving with him yeah. at the one. I think the biggest reason why I'm choosing him as the player of the game because he caught fire from deep, right? And he hit some timely three pointers in the fourth quarter when yep. the game could have gone either way. He also finished at the rim with some backdoor cuts as well. And I think one thing that's that was, you know, that stood out to me, he's always been an above average rebounder for like his position. And I think one of the biggest plays last night, because overall I think the Hornets did a good job of keeping the Spurs off the glass except in that fourth quarter, except in those like last five minutes of the game. He had this like one handed rebound with one minute to go. I don't know if you remember that where he snagged it like right around Pirtle. And the game was like within two or three at that point. So again, like, you know, that doesn't seem like a huge play, but with the way that the Spurs were creating second chance after second chance, I I thought that was a much needed defensive rebound for Terry Rozier. So he is my player of the game. He is Lee's player of the game. And we're going to go ahead and go to the Q&A section of this podcast. And if anyone in Twitter spaces has a question as well, but we did field some questions from our listeners prior to hopping on here. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us.
0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC.
3: We're going to start with the first question here, Lee. It's from at Berese Filippo 4. What are your odds on the Hornets finishing 8th, 9th? and 10th. He says 0%, 40%, 60% if you were wondering his. So he, he thinks no chance that they finish eighth, about a 40% chance that they finish ninth and 60% chance if they finished 10th. Uh, Lee, I'll let you go and kind of give me your odds kind of where you think they'll fall between those three seedings.
1: Oh, that's interesting. I like, I like kind of putting percentages on the three, Lineup uh, spots that they're most likely to finish in. Just, I mean, for context here, the Hornets are are currently ninth. Um, they're tied with the Hawks, uh, but 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 the the Hornets have one more in the win column. The Hawks have one less in the loss column. So they're effectively tied with the Atlanta Hawks for ninth and tenth. They're only a half game behind Brooklyn uh, at eighth. But obviously Durant is coming back. And Kyrie may be able to play at home here soon, is what it sounds like. Yeah, and and look, and the Hornets still have a two and a half game lead over the Wizards, who are eleventh. So they they still got a little bit of cushion to stay in the plan. The next, the Knicks are the next team who are six games behind. They're one and nine in their last ten. Like that was the only other thing that was keeping me somewhat sane during the losing streak. Is that as bad as the Hornets were? The Knicks were like two times worse. So, all right, for percentages, I'm going to not say 0% chance for 8th. Good, I good. know it's unlikely with Durant coming back and the, Brooke, and the Nets kind of becoming fully formed here. Obviously, they're going to get Simmons at some point, too. But but I don't think it's a 0% chance because we're a half game back and we played Brooklyn this week. So, right. I'll say like a 10% chance for 8th. I'll say a... 40% chance for ninth and a 50% chance for tenth. So I'm kind of like, I hope I got my math right there. 50, 40. 10, yep, yep, 50, you're good. 10, 40, 50. There we go. You know, like obviously the the, the Hawks have been playing better than the Hornets over the past uh, month or, or two, but, you know, they're, they're not, they're, the Hawks are not world beaters this year. And the other thing I think to watch, although they still have a massive cushion, the Hornets are still five games behind Cleveland. That's a really big um, deficit to climb out of with only 20 games left. But with all the injuries they have, particularly at the guard and the wing position, like you could see Cleveland dipping down a little bit. They already have a bit, but hard to think they would, they would drop that many games in that short of a time span. But I'm just leaving that open. So that's where I'm at. 10% for 8th, 50% for ninth, 40% for 10th.
3: All right. So I'm along the same lines as you and Berese in terms of like where the weighted odds are. Both Brooklyn and the Hawks, I looked this up, have an easier remaining strength of schedule in terms of opponents win percentage compared to Charlotte. But but it's not by much because Charlotte is also kind of down in that lower tier for strength of schedule. They still have games against the Thunder, the Wizards, the Magic, and then two against the Pelicans as well, who are on the rise with C.J. McCollum. You but know. yeah, yeah, I think it I think it'll be tough to get the eighth seed, but I'm I'm gonna be optimistic like you, maybe not as optimistic. Obviously with Kevin Durant coming back from injury. It'll be tough to get the eighth seed, but I'll go five percent chance at the eighth seed. I'll give the Hornets a forty-five percent chance. Uh, to get the ninth seed. So they're going to be beating out either the Nets or the Hawks in that situation, I guess. And then right at this moment, I probably will place, you know, my biggest chunk and I'll give them a 49% chance to make the 10th seed. So you're wondering where that 1% chance is. I'll just say that there's a 1% chance that they slip out of the plan altogether. I, I don't think it's that likely uh, because I don't trust the wizards. It's crazy to think that the wizards had such a hot start to this season and people were talking about them and Cleveland as like the stories of the East, which is
1: they were like 10 and three or something. Yeah.
3: Like the the defense was really good to start the season and stuff like that. And they, they've fallen off ever since. Um, What about Toronto? Like, do you think that they'll fall out? I mean, they're the seventh seed right now, but I don't know if you can count them out falling to like the eighth or the ninth.
1: No, I agree. Richie, that was the one team I didn't mention. You know, the Hornets are three games behind the Raptors right now, but I, I see them as like a pretty volatile team, too, in terms of where they could finish over these last 20 games. I think that's a really good point. Like, it could be that the Nets start to climb up and the Raptors start to come back to us a little bit. That's certainly possible. Yeah.
3: And Toronto actually has a, a fairly, relatively difficult schedule remaining. They have to play the 76ers twice and the Suns which I don't think the Hornets have to play the Suns again. So they, they'll, be, they'll be in the mix there in terms of the conversation between the 8, 9, 10 seed. So, all right, next question comes from at three underscore stings. Hypothetical, Hornets make the play-in at number nine and beat Atlanta. Uh, number eight, Brooklyn beats number seven, Toronto. So that would push Brooklyn to the seven seed for the playoffs. And then you have the Hornets and the Raptors in the final play-in game. Hornets win make it to the real playoffs. Is this a realistic scenario or not? So I mean, I guess it's as realistic as any other scenario here and would be pretty favorable for the Hornets. I think the point he's trying to make is that regardless if Charlotte finishes ninth or 10th, if there's a way that Charlotte can avoid Brooklyn in the play in. So if Brooklyn is either the seven or eight seed up top and they win, like you're not having to play them because they're automatically going to the playoffs. And I I do think that there's a chance that Charlotte can avoid Brooklyn and maybe they maybe they face Atlanta and Atlanta's even the nine seed and Charlotte's the 10th seed like they were last year. Yes, they'd have to go on the road and beat Atlanta and then they'd have to face the loser of Toronto and Brooklyn. But yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a realistic situation. I guess maybe that's the most favorable outcome that you would want for the Hornets if they're not, you know, already in the playoffs altogether, which is pretty much out of the equation at this point.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the only like counterpoint to that would be you would hope that the Hornets could get to the 8th seed even if they have to play Brooklyn because yeah. then you get two shots automatically, you know? But I do I do I don't hate the idea of avoiding Brooklyn altogether either. I mean, it, mean, it means you got to win two games uh instead of one, but like obviously there there is there is a, a world in which Brooklyn is in the play-in tournament, but is like their fully formed self and are starting to peak as they move into the playoffs. And it's like you're it's like you're drawing like a two or a three seed in the play-in game, you know, from like a talent perspective. Mm-hmm. So I totally get uh, three stings kind of like logic here. I th- I think it's realistic. I mean is it above a 50% chance? Probably not. I think it's, it, you know, unfortunately, it's more likely that the Hornets wouldn't be able to win two straight. But what we talked about either in the last pod or the one before was kind of like because of Charlotte's volatility uh, and because of their ability to put together these just incredibly explosive offensive games, halves, even quarters, like they are not a fun team to play in a one game setting. Uh, because they can make eighteen or twenty threes in a night and just run you off the floor. Obviously, like I said last time, that can go the other way too. You can get you can get this Hornets team on a night where they have nothing going offensively, and and most nights they can't really guard anyway. Even though the defense has gotten a little bit better over these last uh, couple months, mm-hmm. I, I guess the point I'm trying to make is just like, yeah, the Hornets could absolutely get hot for two straight games. And, and and play themselves into the real playoffs. We've talked about how important we feel like that is, Richie. Like, like this team really needs a playoff series appearance, not only just for like optics and success, but also I think for this young core to get like a real taste of the yep. playoffs um, rather than just like late season meaningful games, which is great, uh, playing games, which is great but it just, it doesn't simulate um, the development and like the maturity. I think that, that these young, this young core would get from, from playing in a real like battle tested series.
3: Yeah. I think when it's all said and done, Charlotte, like you said, will have to win two games in a row. Like they're going to finish in that ninth or 10th spot. And overall you probably would want to avoid Brooklyn, but, but Trey Young scares me, you know, too, like he can go off in a singular game. And when you don't have you know, a backup or a fallback game to kind of, get you back into the playoffs at that nine and 10 spot, then you're out of, you're out of the playoffs and um, Toronto, Toronto. I mean, they don't really scare me as much as these other two teams that we're talking about. But again, like any of these teams could give Charlotte a problem on any given night. And one thing that, you know, I keep, I hate to keep harping on here is, you know, the Hayward injury. And we we talk about Atlanta, you know, what do you associate Hayward in Atlanta with? We, we talk about how he's been used as a screener on Trey young to get Hayward in some advantageous spots in the middle of the court and maybe get Trey young into some foul trouble. And that's another situation in which we're just hoping that Hayward can come back and propel this team in the half court because in the play in situation, in the playoff situation, the game slows down, right? Like that's what we always hear about. And you need a player like Hayward that can get that done. It's so funny. I was looking back on the season series for Charlotte and Atlanta because I just feel like there's, I feel like Charlotte's going to play Atlanta in some form or fashion in this playing game. Do you remember Charlotte's only win this season in Atlanta? And do you remember like the storyline around it, or do you not remember? Do I need to refresh your memory?
1: Um, didn't they kind of blast them in Atlanta?
3: Yes, but it was, no? it was more than just that. They that that was like the first day that they got hit with COVID protocols, right? And like Lamella was out, Rozier was out, Plumlee was out, and I want to say Mc. Daniels as well didn't play so it was uh you know three starters were out of the game and Miles Bridges and Gordon Hayward and the rest of them got it done in Atlanta so the only win against Atlanta this year uh came in Atlanta so maybe Mm -hmm. uh that's some positive but I do think that Hayward is kind of like the missing piece here so all right couple more questions left. Jake G says thoughts on what JT's minutes will look like once the team is fully healthy. Also opinions on Kai's development in the G league. Feels like he's come a long way since summer league. He says, so I think we've talked about JT Thor a lot on this pod. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to go you know too deep on this question, but I do think he adds several things for this team and really any team uh, could always use this type of stuff on the court. He's got defensive length, which, you know, he's got the ability to deflect passes, disrupt ball handlers. You know, even if he does get beat off the dribble, he has the ability to get back and, and make a block at the rim. He doesn't need the ball in his hands to be effective. He's almost like a Jalen McDaniels in the sense that, like, he's a low usage type of guy that can cut. But there was this one game in recent memory, I can't remember who they were playing, where it felt like he was more comfortable on the ball. And he even had a couple of plays where he was driving to the basket with the ball in his hands, which is not something that I thought would come in his rookie season. And as for Kylie, like I, I can't sit here and act like I've watched the swarm play at all to make any kind of judgment. So, I mean, I guess you can look at the box scores, but that doesn't really necessarily make a definitive read on a player. So I guess back to the question, if JT is, cause he's kind of getting spot minutes at this point when the team is fully healthy, I think JT's minutes probably will be diminished to a point to where he's kind of not in the rotation. So if Hayward's back, McDaniels is back, I think JT will go back to the end of the bench, which is a bummer, but I I think, you know, it's probably was the plan from the get go anyway.
1: Yeah. I I think what you take away from this is like just the positive reinforcement, that JT Thor kind of when needed was actually like a semi-productive rotation player As as a rookie who, you know, obviously, by the way, only played one year in college. So like uh, just the fact that he is ready even for some spot rotational minutes, I think, is 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 incredibly encouraging from a second round pick. You know, Mitch just kind of continues to to find these guys in the second round that, that look like they can potentially become like real rotation NBA players. I, I do think that, yes, when McDaniels comes back, I would expect that he kind of eats into all of JT Thor's opportunities, which is okay. Like McDaniels is, I mean, I mean, JT Thor and, and McDaniels are very, very similar players in terms of kind of what they can bring. Obviously McDaniels is farther along from a, like a maturity standpoint because he's been with the team for three years, but they do a lot of the same things. They, they kind of offer a lot of the same positives and negatives um so yeah i, I would imagine J- jt goes back to the bench but but that's not a bad thing he he did a pretty good job and hopefully we'll continue to do a decent job because we don't exactly know when we're getting mcdaniels back and obviously yeah of course hayward factors that, into that as well kai uh, like you richie I, I won't pretend that i've i've been diving <laughs> deep on the swarm this year I've, I've caught them against a couple teams here and there but but nothing substantial uh for I mean statistically he's been a monster in the G League. He's averaging like 18 points and 12 rebounds a game, shooting 60% from the floor. He's shooting 30% from three on like three and a half attempts per game, which isn't great, but like it's encouraging that he's taking them and and you know, 31% is about what Miles Bridges is shooting from three. So um like I liked Kai a lot. Coming out of the uh, of the 2021 draft class, he, I had him slotted as a lottery pick on my board. I think he has a lot higher of a floor than people gave him credit for. I think most everyone in kind of the draft opinion making world kind of considered Kai this massive boomer bust prospect. I kind of always took the line of like he's got a floor as like an energy, athletic big. Um and, and obviously there's some real upside there with like flashes of offensive playmaking and stuff for us for a 6'11 guy. Um he's still super young, but and, and I think last thing I'll say on Kai is like you cannot you can't take away incredible G League performance for a rookie as Evidence that he will definitely be a good NBA player like Vernon Carey Jr. also dominates in the G League. And obviously he is not a real NBA rotational big at this point in his career, but it certainly doesn't hurt. And it is encouraging that against lesser competition than he would see in the, in the big show that he is incredibly productive. So I think it's a wait and see, obviously, but it is, it is nice that he's down there dominating.
3: Yeah, you're more of a draft guy than I am. So, like, I didn't really dig too deep in ter- in terms of, like, his, like, overall prospect in terms of right. where he would land in the draft. But, like, he seems like a guy that would pair well with LaMelo in terms of the yeah. pick and roll game as well. I-, I still feel like he needs to add a little bit of muscle, but you probably could say that totally. about almost anyone coming out of college into the NBA game. I can't really give a full judgment on Kai just because I haven't seen him play, and I'm not going to sit here and just look at a box score and say, hey, this guy can... Be an impact player, you know, starting next year or something like that. So, all right. At G Burrow Matt, who actually happens to be here in Twitter spaces, Matt says, do you see P.J. Washington as a long term piece or is he most likely eventually traded before this season? I would have thought he'd most likely be traded, but now I'm not so sure. He says I kind of fall somewhere in between I actually think maybe the chances of a trade like Matt was hinting at this offseason might have gone down a little bit. And we kind of praise PJ at the top of this podcast a lot for his performance against the Spurs. You know, I'm not going to go out on a limb and say that he's like a long term piece. Like, I don't know how you, you know, quantify long term, but. He's going to be in the same situation that Miles Bridges was in this past offseason, where he could be offered that extension, or if not, he'll be going into a restricted free agency in 2023. So I kind of fall somewhere in between. I, I, I like his performance as of late. I think defensively, we're talking about how versatile he is, how he can guard multiple positions. Um, there was always the conversation with PJ Washington and Miles Bridges, how redundant they are. But mm-hmm. like you were mentioning, Lee, maybe, maybe have them play three, four more frequently, and then you know get you a five man that is, is versatile as well. Maybe it's Kai Jones, maybe it's Montrez bringing him back somehow, some way, or or it's somebody else, and just have Plumley come off the bench. I, I think he has the most value of terms of like the tradable pieces on this team. Like you're not going to mm-hmm. trade the Mello, you're not going to trade. Miles Bridges, right? So, where do you fall here? Like, do you think that there's a chance that he gets traded this offseason, or do you think Charlotte has seen enough from him where they're going to stick with him and see how he does next year and just kind of evaluate him as they go?
1: I very much lean towards PJ Washington being a long term piece uh w- with recognizing reality that what you said is absolutely true like if the hornets do want to shake up this young core if the hornets do want to make any type of significant like core changes to this roster PJ Washington is the avenue to doing that he is kind of the swing piece that could actually make um a significant trade um but like and and I was this way prior to the trade deadline, admittedly, the closer we got to the deadline. And I think you and Mitch, you and me both were kind of of this mindset, Richie, like we got more comfortable with the idea of potentially moving PJ all like obviously uh, with the caveat of like, what does that return look like and only being okay with like certain types of returns for PJ rather than others. Um, so I was very kind of like judicious about what I was willing to move PJ for, but became a little bit more comfortable with the idea. The closer we got to the trade deadline, obviously nothing ended up happening with PJ specifically. So now I find myself being much back more in that mindset of like, no, like let's keep this guy. Like let's, let's retain the draft talent that, you know, Mitch Kupchak is, and his kind of like front office brass has been uh, incredibly efficient at finding talent. And, and, and developing talent frankly once they get into the system so you know i think the the debate about can pj and and bridges play together like that that's a dead debate it's obviously it's, it is obvious that they can coexist like from watching the games by the lineup numbers, uh, but by, by the lineup numbers filtered by those two on the floor together at the same time, they're incredibly positive. They're some of the most productive lineups the Charlotte Hornets have on this roster. So like, yes, PJ mm-hmm. and Bridges can absolutely play together, even though there are some overlap positionally and skill wise. So yeah, man, I mean, to answer the question, like, yes, PJ is the conduit to a big shakeup. If it happens, but I am very much still of the opinion that you hang on to this guy, you let this young core develop, and you try and build this roster around the mellow ball and this kind of like, you know, the, these 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 incredibly talented hybrid fours that uh, the, Charlotte, the the Hornets front office has been able to acquire.
3: Yeah, I don't disagree that these two players can play together, but just kind of playing devil's advocate, you know, just for the sake of the argument. Like I wonder if both of these players, Miles Bridges and P.J. Washington, I wonder if their best position is the four. So when they play together, one of them is going to be not playing out of position per se, but they're going to be playing at a position in which maybe their strengths aren't highlighted as much. That's the only thing that I'll say about that, unless you just have one coming off the bench, one starting, and then they really only see time together during crunch time. And I think P.J. is a perfect player to play at the end of the game. Perfect player. I think he was perfect last night as well. We do have one more question here from our listeners from Daniel Tap. What has been the highlight of the season for you this far? Do you have a uh, highlight Lee? Any individual performance or game? I mean, I feel like games and seasons bleed together for me, so I, like I feel like I might be missing an obvious awesome moment that's that's happened this year. You know, I'm just going based off of like quick recall, but I'm gonna go with the comeback win over the Nuggets in Denver. I think that was this oh, year. That was awesome. I think that was this year. Yeah, it was this year. That uh, was definitely this game. year. That was, an, that was one of those ish, ish games. games. That's right. It was an ish game. So uh, they were down big in the second half, down double digits in the fourth quarter. JB throws out ish and it's like ish and Oubre and McDaniels and, and PJ. We just mentioned PJ mm-hmm. helped lead this comeback in Denver. So I feel like I'm missing something, but it's hard for me to kind of pinpoint highlights of the seasons or moments you know, they kind of all bleed together for me.
1: Yeah, um, I think, like, from a macro, and this is, uh, this is like, kind of obvious and cheesy, but, like, from a macro point of view, I just think, like, LaMelo's continued development, like, he was incredible as a rookie, but he has been, like, demonstrably better as a second-year player. Obviously, him getting the all-star nod is pretty cool. Um, I just think the fact that we have... Uh, We have a player in Charlotte who's 20 years old who has a legitimate chance like it. it, It's not going to happen by default. He, he, He doesn't have like a birthright to this, but he has a very, very rational and logical path forward to being like an all NBA type of guy. Um, so just the fact that the Hornets have that on their roster and he continues to improve is pretty cool from a macro standpoint for a highlight. The only other thing I would offer w- would be the uh, beating Milwaukee back to oh, back. yeah, yeah. Um, On the eighth and the tenth of January, like and, ha- and two massive Rozier games. He had twenty eight and twenty seven in the, both those games. That was a pretty cool little stretch, and then and then they followed it up by beating Philly in Philly. So that three game stretch although now it feels like five years ago uh, was pretty awesome too.
3: I forgot about that stretch. That was a very good stretch. That that was the stretch of the season where it felt like this Hornets team was just going to take off. And I feel like yeah. there was some kind of losing streak that happened, you know, shortly after that. So, all right. Any other questions here from Twitter spaces? I, I guess not. So we're going to go ahead and wrap here, Lee. Uh, we appreciate everyone for joining us here on this Sunday morning. Go outside and enjoy the weather. This podcast version will be out tomorrow morning, and uh, we will talk to you guys next time.
2: Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality.